Hey podcast listeners, this is Kobe from the Common Thread podcast team. On this episode, you're going to hear Lucas and Matthias, two Common Thread team members who sit down with a recent graduate, Maya Gazal. He shares his experiences and perspectives about going to Palestine and spending a summer there as an activist, as a teacher, and an IT worker. Now, at the Common Thread podcast, we understand that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a supercharged political issue, and that's not what we're trying to weigh in on here. We were interested in a peer's experience going to Palestine, working there, and being involved with the culture. So we hope you enjoy this uh, experience, this anecdote, and the way we explore it, and we'll keep looking for the common thread. Thanks. Today we're talking to Maya Gazal, who's going by pseudonym, who's going to be telling us about his experience over the summer spent in Palestine. So, so Maya, what, what brought you to Palestine to start with? Uh, well, hi. Thank you very much for having me here in the Comotret podcast. Of course, uh, man. This has been my second time in Palestine. Okay. And it was mainly my need to understand what the situation was to uh, in more depth so I could do better solidarity work once I was outside. And that brought me there for three months. I originally came there to teach English, but as I stayed there and as time progressed, I started to branch out and do other things and meet other people. For sure. Um, so, so you said it was the second time you were in Palestine. What was the first? Uh, 2009, 2009, I believe. Uh, yeah, I spent a Christmas in Bethlehem. Uh, and that was really nice because I got to talk to a lot of people and it was a special time of the year. I have Bethlehem, a Palestinian city in the West Bank, uh, where Jesus was born. <laughs> uh, it's like really in my heart. I really like that city. It's, it's amazing. I encourage everyone to go there. And not just because of the religious pilgrimage, but because it's Palestine and there's people and it's great and you should meet them. For sure. So when you, when you arrived in Palestine this summer, you want to tell us a bit about what exactly the configuration of your stay was, the parameters were, where you were staying, where you were working, what your experience was arriving there, that kind of thing, if you want to get into a little bit of detail regarding that. Uh, so I originally flew to Amman, to Jordan, because I knew it was going to be challenging to... I knew there was a big possibility of me getting deported in the entrance, just because I could have found some articles or material that might have not been favorable to the Israeli policies in the West Bank and generally so I decided to fly to Amman and from Amman fly to Tel Aviv just because if I was deported I wanted to stay in the area and have a plan B and go somewhere else uh, so that's what I did and since the very beginning of getting out of the aircraft I was singled out and pulled to the side and they questioned me for 20 minutes about what was I doing there, how long if I knew any Israelis which was like a weird question, a funny question it's like do you know anyone and tell us their name it's like I don't think you know them. <laughs> I said the name of someone in Boston University, a friend. Uh, and after 20 minutes, they were like, okay, go through. This wasn't even a checkpoint. It was just like outside the airplane. And then when I actually went to the checkpoint to like the border customs, like they asked me again, what was I doing for three months? And then I, I thought it was of my, in my best interest to be sincere and to be like, I'm here to teach English for three months. Uh, and I said, Hebron. And they immediately, like, just, like, the person snapped and, like, was, like, what is wrong with you? Like, why? Why are you doing this? I was, like, oh, I found this. Like, I'm sorry. Like, <laughs> I was, like, playing like a dumb tourist. Like, right. to but so, but so were, were you teaching for a specific school, a specific organization? 
Uh, yeah, I was teaching for an organization in Hebron that uh, like pulls international students to teach. They're not political, but I use them as a like as a way to get internship experience and also be there in the area with an excuse. Right. Uh, yeah. And so, is it considered is it considered legitimate, for instance, for you to for you to engage in that kind of activity while you're in Palestine, given that you're affiliated with this non political organization? Yeah, a lot of people go. I think it's legitimate, like it's legal, and they have been doing this for a while. Right. Uh, but there's so still it's not like, like a clandestine activity or anything. Yeah, like no, that. absolutely, it's like official, and they're doing stuff right. And the thing is, like the people who go. Like there's a racial component uh, when you go to the airport. Many of the volunteers who went there would pass in five, ten minutes when they said they're white. When they said the same thing as me, and if you were like brown or like Arab looking or had like a, a relative in Lebanon or like anything that was like, you know, in 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 the in that arena, like you would be questioned. Like one of the girls that was with me, she was born in Uzbekistan. She was questioned for eight hours, and they strip-searched her, like... What? Which was amazing, because she's, like, 16, and, like, I don't see why intelligence... Like, the top intelligence of uh, Israeli authorities would, like, strip-search a 16-year-old, like, girl. <laughs> yeah, they don't, they, they, they don't take any risk whatsoever. It's, it's, it's With me, true. they stopped me for seven hours in total. Most so of where, the time did, was where, where did they stop you for, for seven hours? At what point? What, so there's what like point a little that? like room, like area where like a bunch of people are stopped for like one hour, five hours, eight hours. Right. But this is geographically speaking. In the airport. In the airport. Within the airport, airport before in, crossing. In Tel Aviv. In, in Tel Aviv, Ben Gurion International Airport. Okay. Uh, and they would stop me and they, first it was like some administrative tasks. So I met like with five people at least. Right. Like throughout the interrogation process. Who would like take my information and then like they would like switch me around but like the main person was a Russian woman Russian Israeli woman mm -hmm. who started really nicely like asking questions and asking like what was I doing there and like what brought me there and what did I think and then after seven hours she was just outright calling me a dirty Arab even though she knew I was Mexican and she called me a terrorist she told me that this was her job and she deal with people like me all the time and at some point, I also snapped and was like, hey, like, if you got something, like, say it. If not, like, you know, I don't know why we're wasting our time here. <laughs> yeah, so seven hours later. Um, so was, so, so you're saying that, for the most part, it was a, a quote-unquote gentle interview process uh, until... In the beginning... I mean, it was never gentle. It was like always like aggressive. The way, well, right? Because they're 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 trying they're trying to investigate you. They're trying to figure out what exactly your motives are and that kind of thing. But I'm 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 saying that at some point, it took, what you're saying is that it took a turn towards a much more antagonistic tone. Yeah, the, fir the first hour it seemed that they were like trying to understand, mm -hmm. but after that they were like pushing me and asking why, you know, why Hebron, why not Lebanon, why not Egypt? And I was like, because I found something here. Like, what's the problem? And they would keep pushing me and saying, uh, well, you know, Islam is problematic, terrorism, Arabs, and they would make all these, like, really horrible, like, uh, associations that pretty uncalled for also. Uh, and I was so shocked because, I mean, they're the government, and it's like a military, like, a representative in the airport who was just, like, calling me a dirty Arab, and I, it was hard for me to understand. Yeah. Do you, do you think they were trying to, like, goad you into, like, uh, kind of reacting, like, more oh, yeah. aggressively against that or, absolutely yeah. and the fact that I was calm like really bothered them more like <laughs> they really wanted me to snap like and they pushed me a lot they were like right now we can keep you here for however long we want like you have no like rights you have like nothing in your favor here like I can deport you right now if I want to so 
you either cooperate and tell us everything or like you know and I was like I'll tell you everything like you know do whatever you want like you know I I'm clean like that's what I said right and so so they ask you about your political background absolutely uh, that kind of thing they so ask for my email my phone address my Facebook my Twitter they I think ultimately found my Twitter and saw some comments I made and I was like am I not allowed to have a political view and stuff and they got pretty offended <laughs> really yeah because they were like oh here you're free you can say whatever we just want to know because of security and they were like clearly not I've been here 8 hours clearly like <laughs> I don't have a freedom to say whatever I want <laughs> Ultimately, they let me in in a really weird way. They used the phrase, uh, you're going home, which I thought meant being deported. And they gave me a visa at the spot. I was so confused. And then a soldier took me around outside the airport before going through costumes to have a cigarette, which was like <laughs> really weird. Like they were like trying to cleanse their image and be like, hey, we're chilling now, sorry. Like, <laughs> and I was there for five minutes and then they brought me back and I properly enter the country <laughs> that's interesting that's a, so basically there's a completely parallel security clearance system yeah absolutely and so you have the traditional customs process and then for basically foreign expats who are trying to enter the territory for whatever reason they put you through this entire security protocol yeah. that very clearly is is designed in a way to get to kind of distort your view of what's going on so that they're better able to to, to have control over yeah. your your personal circumstances and your understanding of what's actually going on it's a lot of psychological warfare and uh, eight hours waiting and you know being interviewed by different people yeah. military people like screaming at you is like it puts you off a little. I, I was ready, and I got trained for that. Did you get, like, food or water? <laughs> like, Yeah, after the sixth hour, they gave me water and a sandwich. <laughs> after the sixth hour. <laughs> but so when you say when you say you were trained for that, what do you, what, what do you mean by that? Do you mean that you expected it, and I so expect you had prepared yourself mentally to go through a process yeah, like that? Yeah, I expected the worst. I expected to get deported, and that reflects on the fact that I flew to Jordan before. Right. So I didn't want to get deported to France or right. somewhere like Absolutely. kind of far. You wanted to stay in the region. Uh, why do? Why did you assume that you'd be deported going into it? Uh, because I think anyone who they they have a great fear of internationals who go there and experience the realities of the occupation. Because they, I mean, the main fight right now is for branding the occupation, and they want to brand the occupation and you know talk about um, pink wash and green wash and be like, hey, we're so great. And by having people seeing otherwise, especially internationals who have who have an impact after when they come back and talk about the stories, that's very dangerous for them. And they actively try to either deport, bar, or you know censor uh, internationals going there. For sure. So once so once you once you pass through this very intensive uh, interrogation process, what what were the next steps that you took to basically go to Hebron? Yeah, right after that, I immediately took a bus to to Al-Quds, to Jerusalem, and I slept in uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and just, like, sat there, and, like, just... I was so confused that they let me in. I I was already in the mental state of being deported after the six hour and the way they were treating me. Uh, so I was really confused, and I was, like, just taking a break from... It was really exhausting emotionally, like, to go through all of that at some point. Like, I'm pretty strong, but, like, still... I was so... Oh, yeah, no doubt. I'm I was mostly kidding. confused on, like, that the fact that they let me in. Right. Uh, and I was trying to understand why they let me in. Well, yeah. And then I took a bus to to Hebron, and then I met the people who, in the center where I was teaching English, 
and they said that I would be staying in a village because they were over capacity in the city. And they said like some family agreed to take me in a village, which was really weird. And I was like, why not? And yeah. that like immediately changed my whole experience for the three months because that family was really connected mm. to a lot of groups doing political work. And yeah, that was like a very crucial moment that was lucky. Okay, so 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 basically, you showed up though. You were expecting to stay in Hebron. Yeah, right? I was expecting, expecting to stay to, uh, yeah, in an apartment or something right. there in Hebron and teach English in Hebron. But because they were in our capacity, they sent me to a village right. that has been known to be very political and, and has a lot of leaders of uh, a bunch of movements. And that was really good because immediately after a month, I was connected all over Palestine with all these people who I knew from the U.S who I studied and like I knew they existed and I knew they were leaders and now they were like relatives of the family and like friends of the family and that really like pushed me to like change the things change the solidarity work I was doing in Palestine and try to connect more with the leadership there so what is that what does that mean for you in terms of just familiarizing yourself item one then item two how did it shift your perspective on doing this solidarity work you know you're saying that you're, you you understand that your your focus needs to shift towards a much more leadership based if I understand correctly yeah. leadership based approach to, to doing solidarity work what does that what does that mean for you yeah so I mean not that I was like dealing with the leadership and not talking to Palestinians right but when I was there I I got contacted by an organization I, I happened to like met an organization there who was doing solidarity work mainly doing patrols and mainly you know making patrols in like areas of conflict where like Palestinians usually get shot and Palestinians usually get like you know beaten up or like kidnapped or where they do all these things that are like not legal and well not nice also I think that's right. how I like to put it <laughs> um, but I think my potential was like getting getting wasted there in some because they had like volunteers and I was learning Arabic and I had all these networks already of Palestinian organizations doing the Palestinian struggle and I think my potential was being wasted like sitting there and writing articles and like which I did for a month I I did it but I felt Europeans and Americans who were like not comfortable entering the Palestinian society the way I did were best suited for that and they had the people to do it so I after the first month I opted to explore other cities and meet with people and Palestinian they were Palestinian underground artists and intellectuals who were doing stuff and try to tackle my solidarity that way so 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 if I understand correctly essentially you were in you were in a position of observer spectator for the yes. first month and then at that point you recognized that there were a lot more interesting and and, and just uh, how should I have direct opportunities to engage. Yeah, not and, that their work is any less, like their work is crucial. Right. But I felt the networks and the, the position I had on Palestine, like I was wasting that con those connections and the things I could do, especially because I started to speak Arabic more and I could connect right. to people. So is that, is that something that struck people, Palestinians on the ground, as somewhat atypical? That somebody, an international kid would show up for three months for a summer but make such a concerted effort to actually get somewhere in terms of learning the language absolutely and that opened a lot of doors for me to meet very important people that would never meet internationals because there's like a view of internationals by Palestinians because I mean they've been visited by them they, they uh, come yeah. they take pictures they post a selfie like they right. 
they say, oh, the world is awful, and then they leave. And yeah. Well, see, I, kind of the kind of the 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 NGO perspective of country of underdeveloped and or oppressed societies, basically. Yeah, and I was staying with a host family for three months. I look Arab, and I yeah. was treated like a Palestinian unless I show my tattoos. Uh, so, and I, and people. With, Palestinians thought I was Arab until they noticed that my Arabic wasn't perfect. <laughs> and then, yeah. So that was, like, really useful for me to be able to enter all these spaces without people looking Raising at me. flags immediately. Just yeah, it was all on unnoticed. Right. Interesting. So so from, from that perspective, what, what, what aspect of Palestinian society most surprised you that you discovered by virtue of engaging much more directly and kind of broadening the scope and range of your potential experience there? Um, well, I think every city is a little different. Hebron definitely is a little more conservative and uh, more traditional. Well, so you want to tell us a little bit about what your impressions of the, uh, of the different cities were and what your experience was just actually traveling through the territory? Yeah. I don't want to generalize too much, but I would say Ramallah is like the, effectively the capital of Palestine because Jerusalem is was annexed by Israel, there's a wall and you cannot get there unless you have a permit which you might not usually get sometimes uh, so Ramallah is like a cultural capital so you have a lot of internationals there you have a lot of like cafes and westernization of the city and they have like clubs, they have alcohol Hebron, there's no cinemas there's no alcohol, there's like it's like very very, they're trying to preserve that it's, a lot of internationals don't go there and like embassies really advise against being in Hebron because it's one of the most violent places because there's a settlement right in the center of the city, Kiryat Arba. And that's amazing. It's like in the center of the city, so there's a lot of clashes and killings there. Uh, Bethlehem is another international place because, I mean, Jesus was there and a lot of people have an interest in being there. Yeah, pilgrims. <laughs> and there, like, people from all around the world go there all the time. And I think Bethlehem is such an important part for Palestine uh, to bring in internationals to Palestine that that was like what made me like meet Palestine for the first time. The fact that I went there religiously, and then I was like, "Hey, what is going on?" <laughs> right. So, so you're so basically what you're saying is your your original trip in 2009 when you went to Bethlehem was religious was, 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 pil- pilgrim, was a pilgrimage basically because of my family. Right. Yes, they were trying to make me reconnect to Christianity, <laughs> but the unintended consequence was that I got radicalized. <laughs> 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 yeah, and that will like awesome. reflect in the remainder of my life too now. <laughs> Which is great. I mean, I appreciate the trip. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I, I bet. Jesus entered my heart a bit. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. Makes sense. So, so Bethlehem is a, is an important place just by virtue of the fact that it, it provides this inherent draw yeah, of to, inter- to international of international community. people who may not necessarily be aware, like you were, of the political situation going in. Yeah. But once you're on the ground and you realize, wait, when, wait a second. Once you're there, you talk to people. There's no way around it. And I mean, even if tour guys try to avoid, uh, you know, you interacting with people, you see the city, you see the wall, you go through checkpoints, like. There's no way of escaping that experience, even if you're international. The whole environment just really reflects it, yeah. You can't avoid it. Yeah, and then you say, like, hey, like, these are people, and they're nice. Like, why are they doing this? And, I mean, those simple questions, like... Absolutely. And, I mean, it's it's so militarized, and there's always a threat of violence like while you're there right and um like how how did that feel like knowing that like you could be like involved in like a violent action or something like that like at any point in time while you were there and did that happen what was your experience absolutely of happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh 
Uh, I was tear gassed a bunch of times, uh, which is pretty strong. I didn't know what tear gas really meant. I thought it was like more like crying, but like it had like a component of like you can pass out and people died like while I was there from tear gas, and that's something I didn't understand. It's a chemical weapon. Yeah, while I was in this organization that was there, uh, they gave us a manual, they gave us like a little training on the non-lethal weapons they used, and the lethal weapons, of course. They were like, here are the weapons they use, and here are what they will do to you. And stuff like sand grenades, and like, you know, like rubber bullets, like, they can kill you, and they kill people, like, if they hit you in the eye. I have a friend from Mexico, too, who lost an eye in a protest in Palestine because they shot him with a rubber bullet. I have a friend who they threw a as a, a, fellow a, Mexi- a fellow Mexican, a foreigner. Yeah, a before. Foreign. Like, I learned about it later. I had a friend from a Palestinian friend who they threw a stone grenade and he lost, like, hearing from one eye. And that terrified me more than being shot and killed. To be able to, to like... To lose an to eye. Lose an eye to, or to lose uh, vision to lose, or to uh, lose... Yeah, right. There's places where it's, like, easier for you to, like, get attacked by soldiers. And I... I was tear gas while participating in demonstrations. I wasn't tear gas in the cities. But I did see like soldiers pushing and punching and arresting people in cities. Uh, but yeah, usually in demonstrations is where you're more exposed to that. So what, what, what kind of demonstrations are we talking about here? So I participated in a bunch, but like there's some outside prisons who, and they just like, they're just there like with flags like they they throw rocks you know right and then soldiers respond with like lab ammunition which is completely right. like <laughs> they blow it out of proportion a yeah. lot and that's where you get tear gassed uh, also all these demonstrations are pretty peaceful like I, I think even the rocks they don't do anything really like mm. <laughs> the rocks like will hit the soldier in the helmet and they'll be like oh <laughs> uh, so yeah it's mainly to show that there's resistance and that they're not okay with stuff happening when settlements are expanding, they demonstrate that. They demonstrate the street. They, like, burn tires to, like, bother, like, you know, settlers to, like... So they smell, like, the tires and stuff like that. And then soldiers go and shoot people and, like, arrest people and, like... And do stuff. And while participating in those things, which I want to clarify, like, taking videos and maybe... Maybe helping, like, move rocks to close roads. Like, those things, like, put me in a position where I was tear gassed and, like, shot... I was shot at. They didn't hit me. <laughs> right. How how do you think the settlers? Because like they're seeing this all the time. That like right, the, the Palestinians are being shot and they're being they're doing these demonstrations to kind of like bring attention to themselves and to the fact that these settlers are moving in. And like, how do you think the settlers actually deal with the fact that they're always exposed to this and like still kind of can keep like a conception of themselves as like good people or something like that? You know? Yeah, especially in Khalil, which is Hebron, which is in the center of the city. There's there's a power dynamic first of all between settlers and soldiers. Soldiers hate settlers. They really hate them because they know settlers are regarded as more important than soldiers. Like because there's a whole like ideological and religious right. like rhetoric behind where it's like if you're a settler and you're like colonizing the West Bank who wants to bring their kids and their family to like such a toxic and like evil environment? Which is like a settlement in the middle of a Palestinian city, like displacing like you're basically yeah you're basically you're you're participating in the creation of a beachhead. Yeah, like people who do that, like they are really respected by the Israeli government and they are protected with soldiers. So sometimes settlers so there's a, so are there's in, the evangelizing dynamic yeah. behind the settlement that 
the Israel, the IDF, the Israeli soldiers resent. It's is what you're saying. It's definitely seen as a religious, and I mean, I don't know if it's religious, you know, but like right. it's like a Zionist duty to like do this. And then settlers aren't like the most. They aren't the best people. Right. No, no, but describe, <laughs> describe just describe just practically the reason for the animosity between settlers and, and soldiers, and why soldiers resent their presence and the fact that they have to protect. Yeah, them. because settlers will do stuff, and settlers usually like even like attack soldiers, which is like they they get mad and like. You know, there's this story of, like, Palestinian five, six, seven-year-olds will go to school and settlers would go and, like, attack them with, like, rocks, like, these kids. And, like, then, like, the government said, like, well, let's put some Israeli soldiers so, you know, there's no clashes. And then the, the settlers would attack the soldiers. And then, like, one soldier shot, like, a warning shot to the air, and he was sent to prison for, like, shooting to the air. And that was, like, that made very clear who was in charge. Right. And usually settlers have weapons. They they are allowed to carry their weapons and shoot Palestinians. And you could there's settlers who run over Palestinians like in the in the city of Hebron, in like the spaces that are contested, uh, which is called area two, uh, which Palestinians can walk there, but they cannot have cars. And then settlers like run them over sometimes, or like shoot at them. And then when soldiers try to like calm them down, like settlers like just like lose their mind and disrespect soldiers and. Like, sometimes civil soldiers would arrest Palestinians to save, like, them from being, like, attacked and killed by settlers and from de-escalating stuff. So soldiers have, like, a power dynamic with the settlers. Right. Settlers are just, like... Right. There's no rules. They can shoot an international and they'll get away with it. Usually, all the Palestinians I met were really... They weren't against binary resistance, but they did not want to associate themselves with it because, right. I mean, doing that is a free ticket to jail right and political suicide too yeah and also like you know you'll go to jail either way for anything even for doing nothing and that's something I understood while I was there like there's no law could you could you talk a little bit more about that that there's no law well yeah and like on what level practically speaking you know yeah I met a lot of people who would just be administrative detention is like the the term term, like yeah they'll just pick you up if you're like a male or like they suspect you know you're doing something and they'll detain you and like interrogate you and and like let you go or like detain you for six months for security concerns everything is about security like when they don't know what to do or what to say they just say security they can designate uh, military areas is called uh, so that you can be in the street and they can say this is a secure military zone like you're not allowed to be here and you stay you'll be arrested and they can do this verbally sometimes and this way they can go to protest and be like, okay, now this is all like a military area. If you don't leave, you'll be arrested or shot. Right. And this is the way they uh, arrest a lot of people. And I understood when they shot kids and when they shot like five-year-olds, six-year-olds, when they would arrest women and children and just... When I saw just like settlers like shooting and killing and listening to stories, I understood that there's no law. And there really isn't law and they can do whatever they want and they would ultimately get away with it so that's when I stopped like trying to not play by the rules but law doesn't mean anything there like unless you shoot a soldier like anything else is like kind of in the same level do you think it's hard to continue resistance when you know that you that the Israeli forces just have like complete power over you and can arrest you at any time and can do all these things with no reason 
Yeah, I think there's like a like a general area of despair in Palestine where like they've tried everything throughout the years. They tried non-violent resistance. They tried political means. They tried the international. They tried the boycott movement, which is what's going on right now, and they tried like weapons and violent resistance. Uh, and usually with violent resistance, how it goes whenever something violent, as in with firearms or bombs or something like more intense, would happen. Uh, the Israeli authorities like retaliate by taking more land. They will be like, oh, you shot a settler, then we'll build 20 more houses. You do this, we'll like annex all this area and make a memorial park. You see these forms of resistance not really panning out. What, in your mind, is the next step then? For them? Well, I mean, I also have no idea. I mean, like, as an international, I see what I can do. What I can do is I can share the stories. I can amplify the voices through platforms and I can push for pressure of the companies and the actors profiting from the occupation uh, and defend the right of Palestinians to choose whatever way of resistance they want to do and I completely understand why people from Yatta for example, when I was there that's what happened in Yatta a town like one hour away from where I was living uh, two people went to Tel Aviv and went to a restaurant and shot like seven people uh, and after that, like, the town was sieged for, like, a month and a half. And this would mainly affect, like, people, like, who right. do groceries, people yeah. who had work in Khalil. Like, the elderly, the, yeah. yeah, children. Like, they would have there's to walk. There's always and, the people like, who pay the consequences. Like, the cars right. could not exit the city. They right. have to, like, walk and take a taxi. And, like, and it's just, like, a collective punishment of, like, all people. And, you know, two, two people decide get fed up and like decide to go shoot and lose it military yeah. people or like uh, arrest civilians them. yeah and then like everyone gets it was in Ramadan they cancelled all the permits to go to religious sites in Jerusalem so they like collectively punish all Palestinian society because people are resisting and how, how do you rationalize mm-hmm. I mean when you're when you're on the ground seriously how do you rationalize what's going on you don't and that's the hard part like when you start understanding that they can shoot people and stuff will happen and that's when I lost it after the first one I was like they would tell me like oh they shoot these two 14 year olds and I was like oh yeah that's normal I think the hardest part while I was there that made me understand like I guess the evil of the occupation is the skunk trucks uh, they're trucks employed by the army and they usually go to cities after an attack or after a demonstration and they spray chemically modified water which is drinkable you can drink it it's like safe but it will it will like stink for like a week and a half two weeks like and there's no way you can remove this the stench and it's like really strong like people have to move out of houses people like there's no way to remove that and they would just go to cities and spray it everywhere like in like schools in hospitals like in buildings and I just couldn't understand that like that's another level of like it really makes where like all these places just like a living hell you know like it makes it unbearable to actually like live there like that's that's horrifying yeah it's pretty humiliating and what can you do like throw rocks to the yeah. to the thing like complain make an article like you know well just uh, just so uh, just listening to it and, and, and just watching you talk about it you, you get a real sense of the the, the, pa- the the palpable powerlessness on the ground yeah, targeting families and, like, people who have nothing to do and who actually don't... Are minding their own business, essentially. They want to do this to divide Palestinian society. Like, no one wants to protest and, you know, stand up if they're going to 
punish everyone and like make the city smell like trash for like two weeks or stop services or close the roads like it doesn't seem worth it it's yeah i mean it just seems like so absurd that there's not more of an international like effort to like stop all this from happening and to or at least to to like have some sort of like human rights concerns like being like voiced towards Israel for this like that's actually effective but I guess like a lot of that is like the US's position like in the UN to like kind of stop any uh, action from being taken yeah of course in that level and especially I want to talk about companies like mm. there's people who manufacture those trucks and there's people who sponsor all these like there's people running the logistics of the world and all these companies we have in the US and like they're doing this and I feel as consumers we have like a duty to to boycott and to raise our voices and to try to raise awareness to punish companies who are profiting and making you know dehumanizing and like profiting from occupation uh, that's for my that's a, a, a part that's a tool in the fight when you transitioned from from work from from your your quote unquote spectator role to to more active participant um, what, what what did that take the form of? So you were, I'm assuming that you continued to teach. Yes, I continued to teach until the last day, either in that city or different cities. I took like a bunch of, you know, exchange roles where I would like offer a service. I would teach, you know, computer science or I would teach like English or languages and they would give me housing and food or right. stuff like that. And I would travel and get locations to sleep in Ramallah, in Birsait, in Bethlehem, in Yatta, in Susia, in in the villages in this way or people would just generally offer me to like right. sleep there people were really nice well it sounds like you were you were basically operating with very little money and just making do by making use of your skills and your ability to, to teach people things oh no I was well funded by my family <laughs> okay. Okay. Just, but, just uh, but usually people would like there was no need for me to spend money like people I had money but like people would not let me pay for stuff like especially in the village where I was based on, where the host family, everyone knew me. Like, it was, like, the Mexican in this village. <laughs> like, they, they, they had no idea what, like, Mexico was or where it was and stuff. And for me to be there and to be there for three months and especially to be very politically involved, like, taxi drivers would know me and they would not allow me to pay. Like, people would give me free food. Nobody would allow me to pay anything. People would invite me to their houses every day. Wow. It was tough sometimes. Like, five people would invite me, and they would all be offended if I didn't go. And I'm like, but everyone is inviting me. Like, I can't be everywhere. <laughs> it was really nice. And so, and so, um, so clearly you were treated very generously, and the hospitality you, you were afforded was Absolutely, every day, um, 24-7. But so what, what do you think, what, what aspect of... of your your call it your political involvement. Do you mm. think um, drew that kind of respect from the local population? No, I think when I the fact that I started getting involved with the patrolling and being in you know being in the city of Hebron at midnight, for example, just sitting there waiting for you know the soldiers to do something and being there putting myself in the line, like that was something that you know Palestinians respected because a lot of internationals, even to my surprise didn't even know what the occupation was. They were like, oh, yeah, I went on Google. I wanted an internship. I got it here. And they were, like, learning. And I was like, this is not a place for you to, like... 
Oh no, I have yeah, it's a particular yeah, it's a particular context uh, to to be. Yeah, people were like really about, apolitical, and right? they were like, "Oh, I don't support violence and stuff." I was like, "Who are you?" Like, <laughs> and and incidentally, that was the that that was kind of the point of uh, that really of made a contrast of, of your no no but but of your interrogators on your way, and it was like, well. Why are you here? If uh, why are you here when you can go to Lebanon or Egypt or or Jordan or something like that, right? It's, yeah, that was like something they actually said. Right. Why, well, like, because, because they understand that they because well on on some level it seems that they understand that you know from your from for somebody like you going there isn't just a, an a internship, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's not just an internship experience in the same way that it might be for other internationals, right? And so that's why they raise their eyebrows. Yeah, absolutely. I think the. The fact that I was really trying to assimilate to Palestinian society, like learning Arabic, uh, you know, going to weddings, like yeah. chilling with people, like smoking hookah, and like uh, you know, just. So you went to you you went to weddings. Yeah, I went to weddings, and yeah, that was really nice. People would think I was Arab too. I was like genuinely interested in like being part of the life of people, and when I went to Ramallah and started meeting people, I started to develop friendships and people who I consider my friends and my family now, like. That was like the shift. I didn't want to do solidarity anymore. I wanted to get to know people, get to know what they were doing, what they wanted from life, and like what they saw, like their traumas and their like love stories. Like, I, the human aspect. Yeah, the human aspect because they're humans and. Uh, and it sounds like you you participate in the cultural and social life of uh, of your host family of the people that you met. Yeah, absolutely. I was, yeah, I see them as my family because they were like three months giving me everything I didn't pay anything they would feed me every day like bring me around share their contacts share their stories all the family like you know uh, all the town would do that and for me like that's really special and it really happened in my heart and the fact that I had this opportunity to really assimilate and be part of the family I follow the traditions and wash the dishes and like I was literally a part of them <laughs> right uh, that was what made some people bring me with them to meet other people and to be part of their lives in different levels and that's when I started meeting a lot of people in Ramallah that would bring me to actions and would explain the situation and explain what they were doing in university and slowly I started to get more involved with different parts of the movement. So obviously, I mean, I you know, you said prior to starting to record that you know there were some things that you couldn't discuss some things that you could in terms of political activities and the kind of political networks that you encountered um, you, what you what you do feel comfortable describing about um, the political aspect of your experience there what what, what do you think uh, is of interest to, to our list to us and to our listeners well I oh uh, well I want to say once I got to Ramallah and I started to meet people that I knew were very involved. I immediately asked very naively, like, what's the plan? Like, is there any plan <laughs> going on soon? And people were like, really like, ooh, set off by that. It was like, oh, no, no, no. Like, we, we don't, <laughs> we don't do that. <laughs> uh, I was like referring to violence or like some actions to take. Uh, but I, then I realized like the fight was more cultural, um, more targeting, bringing the Palestinian society to a level where they really understood what fueled the occupation and what they could do to fight the occupation in more sophisticated ways than just like throwing rocks, which I mean, it's like a huge part of it too. Like throwing rocks is like a deep, like just like show of like resistance. I met a lot of people and families. I met a lot of families of martyrs who have died right. during different actions, uh, and we would like do we would like 
do some patterns. There's like a sewing thing called the trees. And we would do that and be like, hey, we haven't forgotten about you and what your family has gone through for the movement. Like stuff like that. Like we would visit like, you know, people, like they demolished houses of a lot of people right. once I was there. Uh, and we would go to the houses and be like, hey, we're here for you. Like we understand this, like we, we mourn by you and you're not forgotten and like, it's a lot of support for Palestinian families and Palestinian people and prisoners especially like the families and just like a lot of stuff revolves around prisoners around like protesting that they like I met a lot of people there who were prisoners uh, I met a 16 year old uh, girl named Lina Khatab while I was there that I knew from here and I campaigned in BU and you know generally to like I was outraged that a 16 year old was like thrown to jail for like throwing a rock at a, at a military jeep and like she was dancing and stuff and she was like a like an icon in her university and I mean once I met them I I kind of like understood the importance of like political prisoners in Palestine and how a lot of the actions were taken the protests outside the prisons to raise awareness of them and they would also do you know uh, hunger strikes where people would like only drink water and salt for like 60 days or more and that's really intense yeah. <laughs> yeah. like only drink water and salt for 60 days like till you know till you either get so bad that they have to release you or there's like public outrage like right yeah the prison part is the one of the most strong oppressive figures like in the occupation the fact that they can send you in prison and you can be there forever and that's it right like that's the most scary part I think right without without any due processes yeah mm-hmm. there's no there's a military occupation they don't have to bring proof they can just take you and say you it's an intelligence concern yeah. that you might do something and they can keep you there for a span of six months indefinitely so on the on the political level, I mean, for for me, this kind of this is kind of a necessary question to ask. But the the dynamic between um, so-called radical Islam, mm-hmm. right, and the characterization of any and all political resistance and political disobedience in Palestine as terrorism, so to speak. Yeah. There's a lot of conflation that's done there on at the political level in terms of propaganda but there's also an underlying reality that can't be denied in terms of um, jihadist ideology mm-hmm. in terms of terrorist tactics in terms of terrorist ideology so if I'm assuming that you that you that you you actually came into contact with with such elements and what was your perspective on that in terms of meeting them within their actual context yeah, most of the people I met who identified as ha- being aligned ideologically with these groups would be like people my age or younger. And yeah, I think, well, first of all, the U.S. designates a lot of terrorists or blacklisted groups as like, if you're Islamic or like Marxist-Leninist, like right. you're already on list and you can right. see that the list is mainly composed of these groups. Right. But they wouldn't put other groups of like right-wing extremists who right. have done massacres. Uh, people, I mean, Islam is a big part of Palestine. It's most of right. the Palestinian society identifies as being Muslim even though sometimes it's really traditional and I really connect that to Mexico like sometimes in Ramadan we would like cook and do stuff and nobody would pray and you know it's like very traditional like us in Christmas like I'll go back like we won't pray like we'll have a tree and gifts and we'll spend time (laughs) on food but like uh, there's definitely religious people but it's very cultural and very traditional and then 
the lines get blurry of what is culture, what is tradition, what is religion, and right, right, absolutely. Um, so one of the things that comes up in your own experience socially over there, in terms of basically traveling with your peers, interacting with your peers, is um, the differences between statuses that Palestinian citizens have. Could you talk a little bit about that for us? Oh yeah, there's definitely different uh, statuses, mainly the green and the blue ID uh, that Palestinians are given. Uh, if you're in the West Bank or Gaza, you're given a green ID. Well, if you're from Gaza, it doesn't matter what you have, you're like there, like located. Right. <laughs> uh, but in the West Bank, you have a green ID that allows you to travel around and you can maybe get a permit to, you know, to see Jerusalem and the holy sites that technically are supposed to be open to Palestinians either way. And then Palestinians who are born in Jerusalem or in what is called the State of Israel have the blue ID, which is which gives you like the freedom to move around uh, almost whatever you want but Gaza. And you can, if you get a passport, you can like travel around, which is a big thing that green ID Palestinians don't really have. So how does, that ma- how does that manifest itself, practically speaking, when, for instance, you're traveling with a group of friends and you have to go through a checkpoint? Yeah, so I have uh, a story about me and some friends who traveled to Haifa with, to see the sea, which is technically located on the what it's called the State of Israel. Uh, and to get there, you have to either have a blue ID or be international. Green ID Palestinians are not allowed to be there. And we were traveling three ID Palestinians with a green ID, uh, and one Palestinian with a blue ID with a car that had Israeli plates and me and we drove through settlements and through checkpoints uh, playing like the fact that some of us were wider looking and looked like more either like you know Europeans or foreign or like you know Jewish and well this is of course illegal and if you get caught with clean ID Palestinians smuggling them in like that will get you to jail <laughs> and that's pretty bad so we kind of did that, we were stopped, they looked at us, they made like a quick like racial uh, assessment of the situation and they let us in without asking for IDs because we went through settlements, we went through like a very unlikely route for Palestinians to take. And so I, I was with this 22 year old Palestinian who, and it was the first time he saw the sea. Like he was in Haifa and it was the first time he saw like the sea, the water of his own homeland and I spent like a day with them, uh, just in the sea, just being their friend and being there and having fun and enjoying the moment. And that's like when you understand that many Palestinians don't have access to the sea and there's like a lot of really intense and demoralizing things that come with your ID status, like dating or like you're not allowed to like, you know, marry people from other places, especially from the blue ID uh, areas. So, like, a blue-ID Palestinian or Israeli cannot marry a green-ID Palestinian. They they will never give him a citizenship. So you're, like, separated. Like, you're never allowed to bring your family to these territories. Wait, so you're autom- essentially you're automatically divided by virtue. Yeah, I mean, you can, of course, marry them, but, like, you will not be able to live together. Right, and practically speaking, there's there's no point, no overlap whatsoever. Yeah, and this is uh, the, the blue ID and you being international, like me marrying a Palestinian would be like unfeasible. Either I would have to stay in Palestine for the rest of my life, like because if I exit, they will not let me back in, or I would leave and never be allowed back and live somewhere else. But there's no way of having a normal life. Uh, so they're trying to keep Palestinians with Palestinians and everyone else out, and they're trying to divide it. 
in a very like sad and evil way, which is like with relationships and with love and. Would there theoretically be a way for someone with a green ID to just leave the country, or is that not possible? They would be given a travel passport, which is kind of weird to get, and you have to have like a very like strong reason. Like some Palestinians are allowed to go to like Saudi Arabia for religious reasons for the pilgrimage. But even if you're given a passport to travel, like, countries will not accept you if you're Palestinian unless you have, like, a really strong, like, uh, like reason. Like, if you're accepted in a U.S. university, like, that's a reason for applying for a visa and they might not give it to you if you have problems or if they don't want to give it to you. So it's, like, really hard as a Palestinian to get out of the country. I mean, it's expensive, too, and, like, the economy is not great there right now under occupation. So even if you get accepted, like, paying for flights and doing all of this is like not feasible for Palestinians to do and so when so just given the fact that you know part, part of your experience is just interacting with with your peers on a very basic social level what was your observation what, what were your observations in terms of how growing up in that kind of context helped forge and mold certain aspects of personality the kind of impact that it had on it has on on people on their day to day lives and how they view themselves, how they think of themselves, yeah. and how they behave. They definitely have normalized a lot of the stuff. As in a way, they 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 of course don't accept this, but if they shoot someone, they'll they'll know what to do and they'll immediately, you know, go into this status of let's do this, this, and that. And there's no time for them to feel sometimes. I mean, because this happens. If you're 22, you bleed through a lot of really traumatic stuff, including intifadas. And you probably have a bunch of people who have been either killed or imprisoned. So this is something you are more used to. And I I relate to that. I mean, when you grow up surrounded by violence and, you know, all these horrible things, then that, of course, shapes who you are. But, like, people adapt to that. And, I mean, they definitely adapted and they are strong and they they deal with the occupation, stuff that would really disable, like, a foreigner from being there if they someone gets shot like they that would like really mess with their ability to continue doing stuff in a day-to-day basis for Palestinians like they I mean of course it affects them but they they are used to it and it's very sad that that they are used to this <laughs> right a routine occurrence for them so they're definitely very strong people very smart emotionally and I really respect uh, that they're allowed that they're able to keep resisting with optimism sometimes which is like it's really hard to understand how people can be optimistic with the situation there I mean it almost sounds like they're desensitized to some of this uh, yeah I mean that's what kind of happens I guess when it happens a lot I don't want to say they don't feel it of course they see it I've seen my friends cry and I've seen them like be affected by stuff but it's so usual that I mean people just have to keep living like you lose someone and you have to go to school tomorrow there and like they won't cancel classes because they kill or imprison your family so how how did how is Israel as a concept um, articulated in the minds of the, the of the occupied people of Palestine as a someone who is not Palestinian I don't want to push my ideology and like what I think might be the solution in regards to one state or two states or something right. else Nevertheless, when I was there, I really understood that overwhelmingly all the people I met and all the stories see the whole Palestine as a whole thing, and it's hard to it's hard to 
to see it as a two state because a lot of people have been kicked out of their houses in areas who that would be considered Israel like Jaffa, like Haifa, a lot of places like my family that I live there with like they are uh, refugees from Jaffa when like you know the state of Israel was announced or created like a lot of gangs went around murdering and kicking people out of their houses and they relocated to this village next to Hebron so they're refugees from like another place and like to make a two-state solution would like deny the right of return and the right of return to their actual you know homeland of many Palestinians most of them who are outside of course of Palestine many Palestinian refugees in Lebanon in Jordan even in Latin America like a lot of them were actually kicked out of what is now the state of Israel and to compromise that like the right to return to their actual homeland is like something that is like unthinkable for many Palestinians right so kind of the, the, the depiction that we have of the, the, the political context over on the western end essentially is that you know, the, the, the two-state solution is the ideal solution for everybody on the ground. What you're saying is that that's a dramatic misrepresentation. Yeah, of that's a dramatic misrepresentation feel. of how Palestinian feels. And that completely takes away, like, the agency of every Palestinian that was kicked out, which is half of the population lives outside of Palestine. Uh, and not only that, you have all these settlements which are now in what would be the second state of Palestine. So yeah, of course. So many. So many settlers. Uh, I don't know the number. What, like 500,000 or something? Yeah, and I mean, even in the West Bank, if you see it, if you see it from like a military or like legal standpoint, like most of the area, like most of the area of the West Bank is administered or occupied or controlled by Israel. Mm-hmm. So you, you have like these cities and then all the area between cities is controlled militarily by the state of Israel so it's not even like that the West Bank is like a country like it's not and it's not recognized such right so that's interesting because you so it doesn't even really rise to the question of whether or not the state of Israel should be identified as Jewish theologically right it, does, it doesn't even rise to that question because in the minds of the Palestinian people there should be one state is what if I understand correctly yeah or no state you know or but no like state. people should be allowed to like be in the places where they have historically been born and people understand like people really understand Palestinians the connection of the Jewish people to the land as if they, they've been there and they've coexisted Christians Muslims and you know and Jews yeah and Jews and to create a state and to bar other people and to create second class citizenships based on religion which is de facto what is happening in Israel if you're Jewish you have one status and if you're not you are completely a second class citizen and I think a lot of people when they talk about to to eliminate the state of Israel they talk about eliminating this like state that is based on racism and second class citizenship which is preventing a state or like a, a region where everyone can live together and without, you know, denominations of religion or religious discrimination. So did most Palestinians who you interacted with, did, is that they, they wanted, a, like, a single state without the discrimination? Or was that just, like, so far removed from what they were actually dealing with, with the occupation, that they weren't really thinking about it as much? Yeah, well, it seems people talk about, like, the end of the occupation. And if you question like what does that mean like they just want to be able to live and coexist peacefully and they say that this is not possible as like they would love to be brothers and to coexist as brothers and sisters with like everyone on you know the whole area but this cannot happen if there's an occupier like 
not like that. They don't want a relationship like that. Of course. I mean, that's such a it's such a hard um, issue to kind of navigate, just because it um, like it would it would be a radical transformation to the state of Israel to like actually like change that at all, you know? And um, do you like do you see any any like hope for those sorts of changes in like the near future at all? I mean, I would love to. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I really would love to. I, I personally want to go back and see the people I know and the people I share experiences mm-hmm. with. Uh, and I want to see, like, all the family I like I have there <laughs> and see them grow and see the babies they grow. And, like, I, and I want to see them, like, go out and experience the world and travel. So I really, really want that, and I think everyone wants that. But, I mean, the longer and the more money is invested and the more contracts and the more legitimacy is given to the state of Israel as it is right now, the harder it makes it mm-hmm. if this is not resolved, like, with justice instead of, like, with inactivity from the international community especially. I mean, it, that seems like their strategy. They're encouraging these settlers to slowly seed themselves into the West Bank until it becomes these settlements are just growing and growing, overcrowding. Yeah, uh, the Palestinians out of their spaces. Yeah, I think they're slowly trying to to create a memory side of Palestine. They want to, you know, slowly cleanse the Arabic out of the streets, slowly change the names of like parts, take more land, and like change the history, and you know, take down a mosque and build a a synagogue, and like you know, which is what they're doing a lot in Hebron, and yeah, that's what it's currently happening right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that's what it seems is going to happen unless the international community stops, you know, investing money in NGOs and trying to, <laughs> trying to, I don't know, teach like French and Spanish in the occupation instead of taking a stance and being like, we're not going to sell more weapons to you or we're not going to enable you to do this in yeah. the state of Israel. That, that's something that I was, do you think that um, like NGOs and like kind of like humanitarian efforts to like, uh, ease the suffering of Palestinians are actually perpetuating the problem to a large extent because they kind of give this this mask of like a humane like front to what's going on and like it like allows like the occupation the violence to continue because it feels like people are doing something to stop it. Yeah, I think NGOs have filled a void that is meant to be used by popular resistance. Like NGOs really you know, destroy the women's popular movement in Palestine. I don't want to say NGOs don't do good work, but right now, Palestine doesn't need, like, you know, these patches of, like, you know... So what you're saying is that they, they, they kind of mitigate the political dimension of... Absolutely, and they're not changing the problem, and in some aspects, they're, like, even create, profiting from the occupation also. They're, like, giving thousands of, like, dollars to people from Europe and, like, you know, yeah. other places to go and, like, do this work on Palestinians, and it starts creating also this problem of like this racist problem of like people going, taking data, making service, uh, and treating Palestinians as like all like oppressed people instead of tackling the problem and treat them as humans as fellows. Right, they're treating it like a situation instead of treating them like as actual people. Yeah, not to say that they don't do humanitarian work, but I don't think what Palestinians need is more water and bread. I think they need the occupation to stop and for them to be able to live and to, you know, be humans like everyone else. 
And so, so you you talk a little bit about that in your writings in terms of the overall perspective of the international community, and then the people who are legitimately on the ground and doing work there in terms of how, in your view, there should be something of a paradigm shift in terms of how you know the, the communities interact, the way the Palestinian people are thought of. Um, yeah. What, what what aspects of that do you think are most important to focus on, and what aspects of, the, of of that particular issue do you think should be should be really pushed um, in a new direction? Yeah, I think a lot of people saw Palestinians when they were there as Palestinians, as like these oppressed people, these like this like temporary thing they were like engaging with and exploring and like taking information and doing labor on other than actual humans that they could add on Facebook and talk to and, like, you know, discuss things, like, with many things, even, like, with, you know, tradition and stuff, like, you're allowed to challenge people and you're allowed to talk to them and to explore and to become friends and share your experiences because they're humans like us and I think a lot of people didn't treat them like such, rather as, like, oh, you know, let's go see this Palestinian family, these Palestinian people and, like, you know, the work on them ask them some questions and leave and write an article instead of sitting down and having a coffee and talking about music or something, you know? That, of course, shouldn't be the priority to go to t- talk about music with Palestinians. But the point is well taken. Well, the point yeah. is... The point is to, like, treat them as humans because you're doing a lot of dehumanization by just coming, talking about the horrible things that happen in Palestine and then leaving and writing an article to self-aggrandize yourself or whatever. And then they're just, like, there, just, like, as information outlets are not seen as like humans they're, they're treated as means rather than a, a, as ends mm. essentially is what you're saying in a lot of ways and also I mean like the dehumanization of Palestinians is such an important aspect of occupation like uh, you can't you can't occupy people and like treat them in the way that Palestinians are being treated unless you're like dehumanizing them to some extent so to think that you could really make a, do like anything substantive to help them while dehumanizing them yourself kind of seems ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely, and the dehumanization is already taking place to such a big scale by the part of the Israeli education system even. You see the school books, they don't deny that Palestinian exists, but the way they capture what Palestine is and the way they present it to kids is in a very very sophisticated and evil way where they show empty cities, empty slums, or where they see Palestine from, like, you know, aerial pictures. They never show faces, and if they ever show a human, it's to show them, you know, as a Bedouin, as like something savage that is alien to you and different. So the picture you have of Palestinians is always like these faceless people. Like you are never, you never see Palestinians like this person studying like English literature in this university, who you know likes Real Madrid. You know, like you don't see that. Like, and this is what really makes a huge disconnect between. The Israeli society and the Palest and the Israeli society with Palestinians. They don't see them as humans. They they see them as this enemy that is always trying to kill them, always trying to get them. This faceless enemy, and that's what happens everywhere. Even like here, with like the rhetoric of people, they create an enemy, a faceless enemy. They group everyone there and they rally people for a cause that is not always the best. <laughs> right. A funny thing, I always felt very unsafe in the state of Israel. Like there was only like there was always soldiers with weapons and. Uh, I felt always judged that at any moment somebody would ask me what was I doing there and that I had to conceal what I, what, I was, what I was really doing and I was really jumpy all the time. My interactions or like the responses from like the Israeli society when I would 
open up and be like, hey, I'm in Hebron teaching English. Like, it would be, like, really shock from their part, and they wouldn't understand what I was doing there. Yeah. I'd be like, yeah, they're people, like, Palestinians. Like, they'll be like, why are you there? They're animals. They'll kill you. And they'd be like, no, no, they won't. Like, you should go there. And they're like, no, 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 that's so dangerous. Like, no, I've been there three months, you know? And people are just generally disconnected. Like, Israelis don't really go to the West Bank. Right. Unless it's to the military bases or to a settlement. And so in terms of, um, just practically speaking, your political work, I mean, you've talked a little bit about protests, you've talked a little bit about just networking politically, getting to know what the local political scene was. Um, but in terms of, you, but you said that your, your experience working politically over there really informed a shift in your perspective on the work of solidarity. So in terms of political work, practically speaking, what, what changed in terms of your perspective on what needed to be done, how to approach things, where to go from there? Yeah, definitely the boycott movement started to like look more like it was like one of the things that needed to be done. I started to understand that it was really important to amplify the voices of the Palestinian artists and especially the left, the Palestinian left, who were really spending time into understanding and like sharing the stories and creating, creating and posing the question in many beautiful ways. A lot of people who had read a lot of books and really understood the Palestinian history and the history of resistance. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of that would look like we would host events in cities or in towns where we would create, uh, we would invite musicians, political speakers, we would have music and dabke groups, and we would have like theater plays where they would challenge some tradi some Palestinian traditions and talk about the occupation. And you would have like kids, you would have like adults and old people, and everyone would be like kind of sitting there sharing this and sharing the knowledge and exchanging like stories. And I think this was this is really important and this this happens a lot. Uh, where they create events where they like just inform and keep this institutional memory of like historical memory of what has been happening and and the, the Palestinian left keeps challenging a lot uh, you know Palestinian traditions and also the occupation and the, the Palestinian bourgeois that is like trying to be more western and trying to like assimilate rather than challenge like the occupation and like make a stand sometimes and I think that's really important uh, to see the fight as more of breaking the occupation than to bring, you know, a consulting company or a McDonald's to Ramallah. Right. And I think that's really important, and the left is spearheading like that. So how does re how does that relate to the internal politics of Palestine, from your perspective, your limited experience dealing with that? Yeah, it gets really complicated, but the general feeling of Palestinians is of a lot of discontent with the Palestinian Authority and Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, not to say that Mahmoud Abbas is the reason the occupation is happening. Uh, that's the blame of Israel. <laughs> but there's a lot of uh, intelligence collaboration between the Palestinian Authority and the Israeli army. Elections are not allowed right now, and opposition is like strongly like suppressed. Uh, political opposition to, to the Palestinian Authority. And even Fatah is divided and there's like it's complicated and you know sometimes in towns you have some people from one party and then the next house is from another and then you have like a soldier but like they all live together and they're all friends and it's it's a really fluid and complex situation inside of Palestine but yeah overall people have a very strong view of that collaborating with Israeli intelligence to suppress Palestinian resistance is like a thing that you shouldn't do 
And because of this, some people see the Palestinian Authority as collaborators of Israel or subcontractors of the occupation. A lot of people say there's two occupations and that they both have to be tackled. Interesting. Um, you were talking before about all of the like kind of artistic ways that like the history is being preserved and the culture is being preserved. Um, are there attempts by like Israel or the Palestinian Authority to kind of try to, to suppress those activities, or is it more just like overt political action that's being suppressed? Well, it depends what you talk about. I think the Palestinian Authority or Israel cannot suppress like art that says like, hey, the occupation is bad. But if you're going to target like specific companies or if you're going to talk about the Palestinian Authority as a Palestinian, like that's a free ticket to jail. If you go out and make a... Yeah, the soldiers are there in all the demonstrations. But if you go out and say like, hey, the Palestinian Authority, these people, like you're probably going to be thrown to jail. So there's like, you can of course talk about stuff but like if you start getting specific and you start getting more in the planning phase of stuff or specific actions like you you go to jail either by the Palestinian Authority or the Israeli intelligence uh, needless to say that military training or like start starting to train militarily like it's gonna send you to jail immediately also so people are not like allowed to plan any actions other than like protests or cultural events what other kind of concrete, practical, logistical things than just living in the Palestinian territory for three months entail for you on a day-to-day basis. Like, and, I, and, and I mean this not just for, for your own personal experience, but the experience of your host family, the experience of people that you, that you encountered, I mean, above and beyond the anecdote about you guys going to the sea, that kind of thing. What practical lifestyle aspects of the occupation did you feel had uh, an, an effect on the way people actually carried on with their lives on a daily basis? Well, the fact that you, you're very constrained to, like, the areas you can go, and if you choose, as an international, to, like, cross the border to, like, the occupied territories of the 48, uh, which is Israel, I guess, <laughs> uh, you will go to checkpoints, and sometimes they will, like, search for powder, gunpowder, which you're exposed to because, like, they're always shooting stuff and throwing grenades. So that's, like, you have to, like, wash your clothes if you're going to go through checkpoints because if you have, like, gunpowder in any of your clothes uh, well that's a big deal uh, especially while going out of the airport like I made sure I washed everything because I've been in demonstrations and when they start you know shooting tear gas or rubber bullets like there's like powder flying around and staying in your clothes that's one like very specific logistical part that can get you in trouble uh, also like any association with political parties like that's a big deal when crossing borders like if I had like a even like the student wings of like these movements, like they would raise questions and it would be problematic. Um, well, how did you how did you protect yourself while you were there and while you were, you know, encountering and engaging in uh, different political activities with different political figures? Well, I tried really hard to not have anything illegal on me while I was there. I mean, I generally didn't like use weapons or anything right. or like had access. I had access to a lot of, like, ammunition and stuff that was used by Israelis that was, like, in the ground. Like, you can see, like, grenades and stuff in the ground. And if you touch it, then you have powder and stuff. I mean, I was really protected, to be honest, because I had a passport. Right. <laughs> and part of my protection was my tattoos, because I, I look pretty Arab, because I'm Mexican and I'm brown. And I was treated like an Arab many times by Israelis, which meant getting pointed out with weapons and being pushed and physically attacked sometimes. 
But when they saw my tattoos, they understood that Arabs, especially like uh, Muslim Arabs, don't get tattoos and that I was probably foreign. So that really protected me a lot of times when like, I was going through checkpoints or uh, the situation was tense and I wanted to protect myself, I would show my tattoos. Uh, and they, when, they, when they would question me, I would speak English. They can do whatever they want if you're Palestinian sometimes. And, and that was the case where when I would look Palestinian, I would experience a whole other treatment. So that was a very special thing of my experience there. Uh, to being able to switch in and out of the Palestinian identity by showing my tattoos or not showing my tattoos and the clothes I wore. Uh, that allowed me to in, to like not infiltrate to like to blend with the Palestinian society a lot when I needed to just blend and be part of them, or to be an international when I was doing stuff that Palestinians couldn't do, like crossing borders and stuff like that. It also gave you an experience of being profiled like a Palestinian. Absolutely, yeah. I was pushed and screamed at and pointed with guns by Israeli soldiers until they found out that I wasn't. Palestine, and that was a very funny story. Well, it wasn't funny, but it was. Uh, I was, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was like comedy. You know, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, how else are you going to In, in, in it, Hebron, right? I was passing a checkpoint at midnight to do patrols to see if they, to make sure they didn't shoot anyone or at least record if they shot anyone during the prayers during Ramadan. And while I was passing the checkpoint, I was looking to the ground, I was like walking, I was like tired. And a soldier like screamed to me like something. I assume it was like stop or something. And I looked at it and he started screaming to me in Arabic. And I didn't understand. My Arabic wasn't like as good at that moment to understand what he was saying. And I just like looked confused and looked at him. And then he pushed me, like physically pushed me like strongly. And I was so confused. And then I like immediately understand, oh, he thinks I'm Palestinian. <laughs> and then he started to scream to me in Arabic. And I was like, oh, I don't speak Arabic. And then he got really mad and, to, and pulled out his weapon. Uh, and then after like a minute of like awkwardness, like a fellow soldier comes up and she's like, you're not from here, right? I was like, no. I was like, oh, sorry, sorry, welcome. <laughs> after like being pushed and like pointed with a weapon and... But it's the juxtaposition of treatment yeah. right there. Yeah, right. they were like, within, welcome, within sorry, welcome. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know why, the sorry, welcome. attitude. Would like completely, would make me forget that I was pushed and pointed <laughs> with a weapon like <laughs> seconds earlier. <laughs> And so how, so, so, you know, you, you obviously, you, you forge a lot of really strong ties with the people that you, that you built relationships with over there, that you spent Absolutely. a lot of time with, that kind of thing. So moving forward, moving forward, how, how do you maintain that relationship, knowing that these people can't come visit you, that you may not be able to go back and visit them, given the nature of your experience over there? Um, I know that, you know, with... You, you mentioned several times you can actually add these people on Facebook and friend them and message them. Yeah, most that, of right? them. Some of them I have on Snapchat. Yeah, exactly. Snap each other. Exactly. So how do you envision your, your relationships with them moving forward and, and, and how, how do you envision just your experience in Palestine moving forward as somebody who very clearly is interested in the culture and might be interested in going back, that kind of thing? What, what, what's your vision of that right now? Yeah, I mean, I'm pretty hurt by the fact that I am most likely not gonna be allowed to go back because it's my second time and with the treatment, the way in and way out, it seemed like I was blacklisted in a way. Uh, I mean, of course, it's really sad that they cannot go out as easily. Like what I'm trying to do is maybe gonna try to push my embassy and like push my contacts in my country to invite them and you know have a, a tourist visa and being able to see them and help them out in that sense to go out and explore. 
Uh, but yeah, most of them I have on Facebook. The overwhelming majority of Palestinians have Facebook, and I added them, and we talk sometimes uh, in English or Arabic. Uh, some of them I have on Snapchat, and we snap each other, and like I, I see what they're doing with their life every day with their Snapchat stories. And some of them have gone out in some ways, like a friend just got engaged with someone from Europe, and she's getting out, and like gonna be able to explore, and I'll visit her there. Another friend got a scholarship in the U.S. and moved to the U.S. and I was able to see her. Uh, so that's really nice and I really want to go back but it appears it seems harder for me to go back than for them to for me to be able to get a visa for them and maybe being able to see them in another country uh, as the situation is right now when I went to Palestine I put in my mind very clearly that I would share my passport with any Palestinian that wanted it in the sense of like I would like marry <laughs> Any Palestinian who was in need of a passport and wanted to get out and explore the world and, you know, have an opportunity to do this. Um, but even like that is really hard. Like, there's a lot of cases of people who marry Palestinians who are outside and either the, like, they wouldn't be allowed to leave the country ever. They wouldn't, they wouldn't be given a Palestinian ID by the Israeli authorities don't, don't really authorize them. Like, for the past 10 years, they haven't given citizenship to anyone. And so for Palest for people to be able to go to Palestine and stay there, like that's impossible. Like it's like three months the maximum you can stay. Uh, and to take people out is like hard because they might not be allowed to come back first of all, and then wow, that's a huge problem when they they kick out Palestinians from their own homeland. Right. Yeah, I mean the solution for everything of this is the occupation to end, and then I think everyone could be able to have a more normal life than what it is right now. And so, do, do, is there is there any sense of optimism on the ground over there? Any sense of hope? I think internationals bring a lot of hope, and they also bring a lot of pain when they leave. And I felt the pain when I left. Like a lot of people were like sad, and you see them staying there, like, and they're not allowed to leave, and you're leaving, and like, you're probably not going back because I mean, once you go there, it's really hard to go back. My presence there, my just like my presence there as a Mexican, was really powerful for people to see someone so distant to Palestine, so culturally distant, to be there and to understand like the connection and the struggle and to like, and for me to put myself and put like, I mean, I, I really explained to them that this was my life, like the struggle and the liberation of Palestine was like my life and like that I would do everything throughout my life to like achieve that. And for this, for all people and for people who have never heard of Mexico or other countries, this is really, I could see it in their eyes that it brought life. One of the most powerful times I was in Palestine, I was in the streets, and I was just walking, and then this old person was walking the opposite side, and he looked at me, he stopped me, he grabbed my hand and said, thank you, and then he kept walking. And that was like all that happened. Very simple. And that was so powerful that like I almost cried afterward. What, what distinctive feature, aspect of uh, Palestine um, that you experienced while you were over there that you hadn't expected or that you hadn't been exposed to and that, generally speaking, we in the West, because of the nature of the coverage of Palestine, we're not familiar with. Do you want to do, is there any specific aspect that you think is noteworthy or worthwhile for sharing? Yeah, I think there's so many things, but the most important one and the one I would like to keep stressing is that they're human and that they watch soccer and that they watch TV and they have snapshots <laughs> on Facebook and they fall in love and they have dreams just like us and you can connect and like learn so much about music and about anything from them and the other way around and it's just like 
anyone else and I think that is lost when we talk about Palestine we just think that they're a monolith of you know people who follow Islam who are really angry and sad because of the occupation and we don't see that you know you can you can have relationships with these people and like and like be friends with them so what was uh, you know when you when you left Palestine what was your experience leaving uh, yeah it was pretty painful like I was really attached at that point to the family like the only time I cried in Palestine was the day I left when one of the babies of my family like she was five year old uh, when she cried and hugged me and like just the fact that she knew that she would not see me again that I was leaving and that she could not follow uh, and that she just started crying and hugged me like that was that was very hard for me leaving more than anything else that happened to me like during that time uh, so I really would love to I, I, I wrote to them uh, we, we like they made like a farewell party to me they gave me presents they like wrote stuff to me they like did some Palestinian embroidery and stuff for me with the Mexican flag and Palestinian flag <laughs> uh, and I wrote to them I had a photo and I took a bunch of pictures I wrote to them that like this Mexican would not only cross the Bravo River to the US I would also cross the, the Jordan River to see you again <laughs> What was your, what was your, so, so when you actually physically left the territory, my understanding is that you were interrogated again. What was, what was the, the tenor, was the tenor different than your initial interrogation coming in? What was your experience going out? Yeah, it was a little different. They tell you that you need at least two to three hours, no, like four hours before your plane leaves to go through the security process. They actually give you an exit permit, which is really funny. They give you, like, permission to exit. <laughs> like, they give you an actual physical exit permit once you are clear from intelligence. Like, they question you a lot. It's like, what did you do? And I would be like, I went to Hebron. And they're like, oh, I don't believe that, sir. And he's like, well, that's your problem. Like, this is what I did. Like, unless you have evidence of something otherwise. And then, like, people would question, like, my Arabic. And they were like, oh, you have an accent. Your Arabic is really good. And they were like, oh, thank you. Like, that's a compliment. And they were like... <laughs> I was like, that's so nice of you to say. Like, that's what the whole reason I kind of came also. Uh, yeah, and they, like, searched for pow- gunpowder, like, everywhere. They opened, like, my bags, and I had, like, a stuffed animal that, like, my whole sister there gave to me. And they were, like, looking for powder in there. I was like, do you think I make bombs with this stuffed animal or, like, something? And, like... They, it just takes, like, the whole four hours of them to, like, give give you clearance to leave the country, which is something really weird. I just wanted to get out. Like, I really just wanted to, like, just get me out. Like, whatever. Just, right. I want to get out. <laughs> it but takes four hours to get out. Yeah, and they thoroughly investigate pretty much every aspect of what you have on your person, right? Yeah. And I also, like, of course, I cleansed everything. I put everything in Google Drive. Like, my phone, I broke, like, the, the chips and everything because I didn't want to compromise anyone that I had met on Palestine. And that was my main priority on my way in and on my way out. Not me, but the networks I have. And a lot of people, they just confiscate computers and they're like, okay, your computer stays here to leave. And they would like go at it with the IT teams and like extract information and photos. And that was my main concern when leaving, not compromising anyone. Did, put it this way, did you share any, any, any aspect of your political activity or anything like that? Um, while they were interrogating you or we can cut this from the interview too but no absolutely not like I would be a dumb tourist who wanted to learn Arabic and wanted to get a thrill of being in an exciting exotic place <laughs> <laughs> that was the persona I chose <laughs> coming in and coming out 
Like, I couldn't just be, like, a dumb tourist. I was like, oh, this is exciting, blah, blah, blah. But I, of course, couldn't be, like, uh, active, radical <laughs> yeah, militants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. We, we want to thank Maya for spending the time, spending the, the energy, and also sharing his memories that obviously are at times difficult about his experience in Palestine. Thank you for doing this, and, and thanks for your contribution. Well, thank you so much for inviting me, and I'm really happy I was able to share the stories and amplify the voices of the people in the ground who need us the most right now.